If you are into conversations that are habitually disruptive, welcome to Confessions of a Crappy Christian, the speakeasy edition. For the last few weeks, both here on the speakeasy and on my Instagram, we've been having a lot of conversations about disagreeing and the capacity to disagree and the desire to have conversations with people that we disagree with. What naturally comes with that is the potential to change your mind, right? I'm a big proponent of normalizing changing your mind when you're presented with new information. I don't think that it makes you inconsistent. I don't think that it makes you wishy-washy. I think that it makes you capable of discernment and open-minded. I have changed my mind on so much in the last five years. Things that I used to be really judgmental about people doing or not doing, I now not only understand why they do or don't do those things, but also agree with them, have joined them in that walk of life. But for me, there are a handful of things that quite simply are not up for negotiation. And that doesn't mean that I am not willing to have conversations. That doesn't mean that I don't want to hear the other side. It simply means For me, that I have, one, done my own due diligence. I have done my own research. I know why I believe what I believe. I know the research and the data to back it up. These are not the beliefs of my parents. These aren't the beliefs of an institution. Honestly, and this may be somewhat unpopular, but outside of my belief in God, a lot of my beliefs are informed by my Christianity, but are not formed by. There are plenty of people who don't believe the same way I do in a triune God and agree with me on some of these hills that I'm willing to die on. So I wanted to talk about what mine personally are. I did a little market research and asked what yours were. No surprise, they are similar. And so I just thought it would be good after a lot of conversations about open-mindedness to remind us that it is okay to have beliefs that you believe, (laughs) that you're not looking to change your mind on anytime soon. Personally, I don't believe that that makes you close-minded. I don't think that it makes you ignorant. I don't think that it makes you unwilling, if that is not the majority, right? I think that you can venture into some close-minded territory if All of your beliefs you hold with a really closed hand, and this is what I believe, and you're wrong, and I'm right. I think that that can get unhealthy, but I think that it is human nature and good to have beliefs. This is what I believe. I'm going to die on this hill. You're not going to change my mind. And you have the backing to stand firm in that. You're not just going with some kind of party line. So I think for a lot of Christians, obviously the first one is a belief in God, right? Some Christians will take that even further and think that all of their secondary beliefs are the only way and you're wrong. Not only are you wrong, if you don't agree with them, you're not a Christian. I had so much kickback from my cannabis episode that I'm like not a Christian, which is wild to me. Also very much convinced 
that most of those people didn't even take the time to listen to. My belief system is I believe Jesus was the son of God, that he was born to a virgin, that he lived a perfect life as a man, that he was crucified, that our sin died with him. He was buried, resurrected, and ascended to heaven 40 days later, that he sends his Holy Spirit back to us to be the me expression of Christ to the world in the hopes that other people are drawn into him. That is my religion. There's a lot that goes with that, and I realize that that sounds like a gross oversimplification. And there are other things in scripture that I interpret as pretty black and white, but I'm also not necessarily interested in arguing with Christians about their secondary beliefs because I don't think it's productive. There may have been a time on the internet, maybe a few years ago, that theological debates were capable of staying above the fray and could be intellectual. So much of it now degrades into negativity and the Christian infighting is so gross and so unattractive that I kind of just don't want to have anything to do with it anymore, to be honest, because I'm having too many conversations with people on the fringes who are looking in at Christians ripping each other's heads off for secondary beliefs and they don't want anything to do with it. And I can't blame them. I kind of don't want anything to do with it either. So that's the foundation, right? That is my belief. That is my religion. Jesus is my everything. My life is to glorify him and to do the the best that I can with what he's already given me. Beyond that, there's a handful of things that I believe really deeply and passionately that, yes, I do believe line up with the instruction of scripture. I realize that there are people, they think their complete opposite beliefs line up with scripture. Kind of is what it is. But let's talk about what those things are. For me, they come down to the case of abortion, that mental health is the same as physical health. And the idea that there is a cultural target on our kids' backs. It sounds so overdramatic, but that there are powers that be that control culture that are coming for our kids. You may notice that there is a trend amongst those (laughs) topics. A lot of them are about kids and about children. This isn't a wholly biblical (laughs) concept. But I do tend to line up with libertarianism and the idea of don't hurt people and don't take their shit. And so much of what we're seeing today impacts children who don't have the capacity to consent or make decisions or even have discernment to deal with what is being blasted in their faces constantly. So I guess you could say I'm passionate about kids because mental health impacts kids and adults. Obviously, all of these things impact all of us. When I get on my social media and talk about, I kind of don't care what adults do behind closed doors, I'll get pushback of, well, I think we need to care. And I agree. I think that there's a degree of general humanity caring for one another. And when you stop caring what people are doing, things can get dangerous. But for me at the same time, there's so 
much that's being pushed on people that don't want it or can't handle it that I kind of look at it as there's enough issues out in the public. What's happening behind closed doors is honestly kind of the least of my concerns. That's just me. So if you've followed me for any amount of time, you know that I am pro-life. A lot of the reason that I am as passionately pro-life as I am is my life experience. I grew up in a home with a father who was a neonatal nurse practitioner who spent his time and energy and gifts away from his family, ensuring that babies born with the odds stacked against them would have a chance at life. He worked through the Hurricane Katrina. He was on the clock keeping these babies alive. He's had babies not make it. He's had babies that weren't supposed to make it come back and visit him as a thriving five-year-old. So that is the environment that I grew up in. I reject the idea that I am supposed to completely emancipate myself from my upbringing and, and the beliefs that I grew up around. I do think that there is maturity in ideas and concepts becoming your own and knowing what you believe and why you believe it. But I'm not going to abandon the way that I grew up and what I was taught just because that's what's trendy. Now, there are some things that my parents and I disagree on, absolutely, and I think that that's healthy as well. But that was the environment that I grew up in. And then as a young adult, I walked through multiple friends having abortions and the emotional fallout and impact that that had on them in their lives. I also walked with a lot of friends through infertility, and that shapes the way that you view life and how we are brought into this world and how cavalier people can tend to be with the idea of life and conception and pregnancy. So our life experience dictates often and at minimum influences why we will believe what we believe. Those are the odds stacked for me being pro-life. Then add on top of that, that I'm a researcher, that I want to understand things. So I kind of throw people for a loop sometimes when I tell them that I'm pro-life and that I am largely pro-life for scientific reasons outside of religious reasons. You'll get a lot of keep your religion out of my uterus. Religion doesn't belong in politics, which that's a whole different conversation that we will have probably in the near future about the idea that the only belief system that is excluded from informing policy is Christianity. But I've had so many of these debates at this point about abortion and about life and when does life begin and when do people have rights, et cetera, et cetera. What it tends to come down to for people is when does life begin? Obviously, there are your outliers out there who really do believe with conviction that you should be able to have an abortion at 28 weeks when that baby is viable. And then there are the people who will bring up abortion in the case to save the mother's life. Can we just stop using words that don't mean what we're saying? Because if a woman is 28 weeks pregnant and her life is in danger, they aren't going to abort the baby. They are not going to inject saline solution into the baby's brain and cut off the baby's arms and legs and pull it out with forceps. It's not what they're going to do. 
If the mother's life is in danger, they're going to either induce labor or have an emergency C-section and then give that baby life-saving care. Honestly, that can happen as early as 23 or 24 weeks. My father has had babies born at 23 and 24 weeks gestation live and thrive and come back and visit him. So that is not an abortion. That is an early delivery. The two are not the same. If your life is in danger, they are not going to go in and intentionally kill the baby in utero and pull it out. That is an abortion. And I don't mean to be explicit. We got to stop using words synonymously when they are not. An abortion is, I do not want this baby to live and I'm going to do something about it. It is not an abortion if the baby dies in utero and needs to be delivered. It is not an abortion if the mother's life is in danger to the point that delivery is necessary. Now, if we want to talk about when does life begin, this is what it has boiled down to for me. And for some, this is oversimplified. For me, it's just what makes sense. If someone is considered dead when their heart stops beating, then you are considered alive when your heart starts beating. One of my favorite takes on this is the comedian Bill Burr, who I have a strange affinity for, even though he and I disagree a lot. And he does this bit, and he's talking about how he's always been pro-choice, and pro-choice has always made sense to him. But the more he thinks about it, he likens it to if he is making a cake and he puts it in the oven and you pull it out before it's done baking and you throw it across the room. And he's like, why'd you do that? And they're like, well, it wasn't a cake. And he says, well, if you would have left it there, it would have been, right? There is no other case for which we make such a passionate argument that life exists or not, except for humans. If we find some molecules on Mars, America has said that that was life on Mars before. That's life, but the beating heart that, yes, requires intubation in a woman's body isn't? That's some mental gymnastics that honestly I'm not capable of. Pro-life and baby's right to be born is what cognitively, biologically, scientifically, and yes, religiously makes sense to me. Another really popular argument in the Christian space is the womb to tomb. You can't just be pro-birth. And I agree with that. I think that there is a lot of room for the church to step up in the arena of caring for people throughout their lives. There's a lot of ways that the government gets that really, really wrong and is a lot of why we're in the position we are today. But the bare minimum for being pro-life, for being pro-life from womb to tomb, is the right to be born. You cannot be a womb to tomb Christian if they're not being born in the first place. It is always so fascinating to me that we put this requirement on people for their activism to be all-inclusive. When we don't really do that to everybody, we largely do it to Christians, that if you care about this one thing, you have to care about all of the things that are adjacent to it. My question is always, do you get mad at the Susan B. Komen Foundation that they don't advocate for prostate cancer? That they, they only advocate and fund and work with breast cancer. You're allowed to care about things and not care about all of them. I don't think that humans have the capacity to care about and advocate 
for all of the things and have a life. So I think that there is a delineation between being a single issue voter and being passionate about something that you have life experience with. I'm going to do my best to advocate for humans as well as I can from womb to tomb and hold the belief that you can't advocate for people all the way till their death if they haven't been born. Another hill I'm willing to die on is the concept of mental health, that it is as important and should be prioritized and treated the way we treat physical health, holistically and medically. I've struggled with my mental health since I was a kid. I don't really remember ever not. And we didn't have a lot of language to have conversations about it in the 2000s. I don't remember anybody throwing around words like anxiety or panic attacks or insomnia or any of those things really ever. And I know that for some mental health develops in later years or all of a sudden you have this crash or you know this really traumatic event that brings on things and i think that those mental health stories are as legitimate and should be treated as kindly as people who for whom it is more likely genetic and is something that they have carried their whole lives when i became an adult and was able to advocate for myself and also develop language to communicate how I was feeling and how my brain and body felt and that I needed help, that I wasn't going to make it (laughs) this way for long, the immediate answer was medication. And you can go back and listen to the Christians and Cannabis episode. I give a whole timeline of going to college and crashing and burning and, and ending up on pharmaceuticals. And what's really interesting is that this is an area that I tend to actually line up with non-Christians sometimes a little bit more than believers. The church has come so far in this conversation since I was a kid or since I was in youth group. There's still a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of room for improvement in these conversations, but I don't want to hammer down on an institution or a group of people when it is clear that they are making an effort. We are trying to get better about these conversations. And sometimes I think our growth is stunted because this is simply difficult to talk about. What has been helpful for me, because I didn't always think and feel this way, I used to really consider my mental health a faith issue and I used to consider it, I didn't trust God enough, I didn't pray enough, I didn't do enough. And then you start learning about our brains and For me, it simply brought me more into awe of God and his creation and the complexity of it because he is so incredible and our brains are so insanely complex and connected. There's a couple of books that I really love about this. The Body Keeps Score is probably my primary one. It's just about how our bodies and our brains hold on to trauma if we don't work through and heal from it and how that can manifest in our bodies. But for me, where this conversation tends to be lacking is less in treatment and medication or how you're managing it and more in empathy and understanding and in the sense of legitimacy. I still often 
walk away from conversations with people about mental health. And the general takeaway is, yeah, I mean, mental health is real, but it's not, it's not like cancer. It's not like high blood pressure. But what if it is? What if it is? What if just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not real? Because I can't tell you how many times I've said, I wish every time I was having a panic attack or even just that my anxiety was spiking really bad that I'd get a nosebleed. And I know that sounds very weird and twisted, but then there would be some outward manifestation and like blood equals serious for people that would give it some legitimacy because I can tell you from experience and from the experience of people that I know, whether it's in the ER, whether it's in the church, whether it's at school, whether it's at home, I understand that mental health is difficult to understand, but we have to stop dealing with it with the flippancy that we often do. Are there Christians out there who don't believe in Western medicine or Eastern medicine? (laughs) They think that you should just Pray and God will either heal you of your cancer or you were meant to die. Sure. And that's a different conversation that we can maybe have at a different time. But I would say that the large majority of believers believe in Western medicine for certain things. It was so insane the week that the cannabis episode came out, watching Christians with full conviction say that I mean, and they may not have used my name deliberately, but it was, it was kind of obvious when you've never talked about cannabis before and now we're having full-blown posts in your feed about it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a leap there and assume it's about me saying that it was an issue of faith, that it was an issue of trust, that it was an issue of discernment, that it was an issue of not leaning on God enough. And I have to tell you, over the last year of doing a lot of work to heal and being in a ton of therapy and trying to let go of past trauma, that was the worst. Having Christians act like that at frickin', that was the worst. (laughs) It made me, didn't make me angry, it made me so sad. Because you know what, like I can take it. I have a really good support system, I know what I believe, but I'm thinking about people consuming that content and believing it because they trust these people that are putting it out and instantly minimizing their own mental health because someone was flippant about it and said it's not real. And I don't even necessarily think that that's what people are trying to say, but it is what is being communicated. And we have to stop. It has to stop. The church is not exempt from the mental health crisis. There are kids and adults alike who are ending their lives because they are dying under the weight of their own mental health and they don't believe it's legitimate so they don't get help. They think that they should be able to pray it away so they don't tell anybody because they feel the pressure to appear perfect and so they don't get help. I will die on that hill for the rest of my life likely. The final one for me and for this episode is activism in classrooms and the the results, the outcome or the consequences however you want to view them. So in 1962, we took prayer out of public schools. And if you've been watching history unfold, whether you you don't have to have been alive when that happened, you have watched a different religion infiltrate public schools. So this is one of my hot takes and often unpopular opinions, but 
liberalism and the traditional tenets of it is a religion. The traditional definition of religion is a set of beliefs, values, and practices based on the teachings of a spiritual leader. I don't know who we're going to blame for liberalism. There's a couple of them. There's a nice little handful of white dudes from the, from the early 1900s that birthed a lot of these belief systems that you're seeing today. That if you do too much research into those men, you find some hugely concerning belief systems about pedophilia, about queer theory, about how we should treat kids and what they are capable of. I'll allow you to do that deep dive on your own because I've done it and I don't want to do it again. If we're going to say that liberalism is a religion, and I'm actually not talking about classic liberalism because classic liberalism holds the beliefs of the right of the individual and liberty and consent and political equality and equality before the law. I think we can generally agree that those tenets have been abandoned and replaced with big government and a sexual revolution. And I am not trying to crap on liberals. <laughs> I'm not trying to make liberals out to be the bad guys. They believe differently than I do. I'm okay with that when their beliefs don't seep into the lives of the next generation who are not old enough to discern and make decisions. So we take prayer, we take God out of public schools. And if you really think about it, 61 years is not very long. And to think that 61 years ago, prayer was in schools and looking at the state of, we're making some generalizations here, a majority of public schools that have pride flags and pronouns and common core curriculum and incredible amounts of governmental interference, that is enough to give you whiplash if you really look at it at how fast our kids' childhoods changed. And one thing that I wish that we could at least agree on that I think a lot of us probably won't is that we replaced one religion for another. We replaced the religion of a belief in God and the worship of God to a belief in ourselves and the worship of ourselves and what we believe in often our sexuality. And I can't get on board with that being the answer, with that being the other side of the coin. This may be weird, but I can understand why parents who are not raising their children in Christian homes would be uncomfortable with their kids going to school and praying if that's not what they believe. I can understand why that would be confusing, why that would be conflicting, why they wouldn't want that to be the case. I don't agree with it, but I can understand it. So can the same courtesy be extended to parents who don't want their kids at 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 exposed to transgender ideology or the idea of gender affirming care or whatever the heck. I don't want my kids to know your pronouns. I don't want my kids to know who you're sleeping with behind closed doors. I don't want my kids to know what you identify as. That's not why I'm sending my kid to school. I'm sending my kid to school to learn math and to learn science and to learn social skills not to learn about sex and sexuality. Is the sexual education system lacking? 
also don't believe that that is the job of the education system. That's the job of the parents, which I know, again, whole nother conversation. Because here's what happens. Let's take my five-year-old, for example. She's one of my favorite humans on the planet. She's freaking hilarious. She's fiery. She's bullheaded. She is also incredibly impressionable because she's five. Her older sister does something. She wants to do it. Sometimes she doesn't, but more often than not, she wants a carbon copy of whatever her older sister got. Her favorite color changes every week. The only thing she has consistently believed for the last year is that she's going to be a ninja when she grows up. Like the whole black costume, swords, sneaky. That's her primary goal in life right now. The religion that she is being exposed to within the walls of our home, within the walls of our church, and within the walls of the school that they go to is that she is made by God, that he loves her, and that he sent his son to die on a cross for her. I cannot agree with you that that is as damaging or dangerous as the religion of you can be whatever gender you want, you can sleep with whoever you want to, you can use whatever pronouns you want to. That is not an equal comparison. So that is something that I am going to continue to believe that I have the upper hand on, that morality falls in my court. Now, when it comes to transgenderism in general, I'm going to be really honest. I said this at the beginning of the episode. There's a lot of other stuff to care about. Like, I don't think I don't want to pay for you to have a vaginoplasty. I don't want to be forced to wear a rainbow flag. I don't want you to shove your beliefs down my throat. But if you want to save your dollars and have surgery at an age of consent, then okay, go for it. If that's how you want to spend your money, if that's what you want to do to your body, there's other stuff for me to care about. I draw the line at kids. I draw the line at gender-affirming care. I think it's abuse. I fully believe that gender-affirming care is abuse because these kids have no idea. If you can't consent to sex, you can't consent to a sex change. It is really that simple for me. And the data and the statistics that I've been able to find back up that gender-affirming care is not doing what the media wants to tell you it is successfully doing, which is solving a mental health crisis. Transgender kids have the same likelihood of suicide post-transition as they did pre. And you can't tell me it's because how they're being treated, because if they're transitioning, they should be able to pass as the gender that they have transitioned to, right? But I just, the older I get, the less I care what adults are doing. <laughs> I, it is devastating to watch men come in and wipe out women's sports and women's positions of power in the government and play dress up and expect all of us to play into their delusion. And that is frustrating, but it's not necessarily something that I'm willing to go toe-to-toe with people every day because there's kids that are being exploited, that are being manipulated, that are being leveraged for the beliefs of their parents in a way that harms their kids in the future. And what I'm not going to do is stop being passionate or advocating for these kids because it makes some people uncomfortable or because they believe differently than me. 
I'm done being made to feel shameful or over-exuberant about being passionate about the things that I'm passionate about when I have been pursuing open-mindedness and understanding for as long as I have. I really do believe the two can coexist. I don't think that we should be all one way or the other. I don't think that we should be like, these are the things that I believe and everybody else that doesn't believe like me is wrong and destined for hell and you can't be a Christian, blah, blah, blah. I also don't necessarily find it to be healthy when all of your beliefs are incredibly wishy-washy. And maybe that's just me and like my Enneagram 8-ness and that I can draw a hard line. But sometimes I'm like, nope, this is worth holding the line on. This is worth saying this is wrong. This is worth speaking up about. This is worth using your platform about. And I realize that there are other people out there who feel the same way about their issue of choice and look at my issues of choice and think that they aren't as important. That is kind of the point. I really do believe that we aren't all called to be passionate about the same things, that conviction and discernment come from the Holy Spirit, that he equips us to walk into these conversations and to navigate them, to try to help people give words to what they believe, to help them feel brave enough to talk about it. That is an incredible call. It's an incredible gift to get to do that. And I'm going to keep doing it until God tells me not to. I just wanted to have a conversation about the nuance of it, that there is a both and, that you can hold some beliefs with an open hand and also be very convicted and passionate about others. So those are the hills that I am willing to die on, that according to my market research on Instagram, a majority of you are also willing to die on. There was a lot of input about vaccinations, childhood vaccinations, mandatory vaccinations, about the government and that they don't care about you. To me, these kind of all intertwine. So thanks for showing up for another episode of The Speakeasy. I'll see you on Wednesday with my lovely guest, Kelly Minter, talking about the Sermon on the Mount and the miracles that Jesus did and the impact that that has on us living in the new covenant. And I hope you have a great week. Thank you.